Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, hometown of the recently passed Fred Meyer, philanthropist and freethinker. The more I read about him, the more I was intrigued. Absolutely. I had no idea. He was a good guy. Hmm. Um, you can now find us online at freethoughtblogs.com slash reasonable doubts. Or you can listen to us on Public Reality Radio, WPRR, Ada Grand Rapids, W237CZ Hudsonville, 1680 AM and 95.3 FM, and streaming at publicrealityradio.org. My name is Dave Fletcher, and with me in the studio, my fellow doubtcasters, teen pop sensation Justin Schieber. Hello. And Dr. Professor Luke Galen. Where's our fourth? Uh, our fourth, Mr. Jeremy Bean, is under the weather this week, so he will not be joining us. Um, on today's show, we're doing a complete 180. Yes, we're talking about the deeply, deeply moving film, <laughs> question mark, called 180 from the Banana Man, Ray Comfort. Along with that, we've got some God Thinks Like You, a little polyatheism, and more. But first... Let's start off with some news, and I guess this this earns props. This past week was Thanksgiving here in the United States. In Canada, they're like, that happened a month ago, eh? And in the rest of the world, they're like, Thanksgiving for what? Um, it's a little holiday we celebrate here, and uh, it commemorates the uh, mass murder of the native people who lived here. Thanks for the corn, Indian. Uh, now I won't starve. Here's a blanket you might want to rub on your face. <laughs> yeah. um, I'm not a fan of that. I saw a comic where uh, it showed Indians constructing a giant wall. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Source. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, we just celebrated Thanksgiving where generally it's it's mostly a holiday about eating too much. But uh, President Barack Obama caused some controversy with his Thanksgiving address. I'm shocked. Yeah, because uh, usually people let him slide on, on stuff. Yeah. Um, but he, in his Thanksgiving address, did not mention God. Oh, boy. Well, I don't know what he could have possibly been thankful for. Or yeah. Thankful to. Right, absolutely. <laughs> and, and the weird thing is, since Thanksgiving is such a religiously based holiday, right. in that it's one of the few holidays we have that is entirely secular in nature, right? Mm -hmm. um, which, by the way, I don't know if, if you guys had this, but when I was growing up in the Christian Reformed Church, we had services on Thanksgiving. Yeah, we uh, I mean we went to church any occasion to have one yeah. the Lutherans had one so. Yeah, hmm. okay. Which which is weird because in my head it became a religious 
thing, but in fact, Thanksgiving is an entirely well. They, they were always working holiday. like the, the the since the pilgrims were here for religious freedom, right? Right. It's for, therefore, it's a religious holiday. And then the more I read about that, like, <laughs> oh, wait a minute, they're they're for religious freedom for Puritans. Yeah, right, it's not right, so right, much right. for anybody. The freedom to oppress <laughs> other people's <laughs> <Exactly>. religion <laughs> is what it comes down to. Hi, I'm a different denomination. Could I sit down at the table here? Uh, no, we built a scaffold for you back there, so... Yeah, yeah. Um, so in his address, President Obama talked about, you know, a lot of what the nation's going through and, and thankful to this and that and the other thing, but he didn't mention God, except, of course, when he did mention God, which was in his typical closing of God bless you to everyone listening. So... Uh, his critics are jumping on him saying, you you didn't acknowledge God. And he did acknowledge God, which is um, funny and uh, I still think inappropriate. We don't need to sign off with uh, God bless. Interestingly enough, though, three of the Republican presidential candidates, Mitt Romney, Newt Gingrich, and Rick Santorum, don't Google his name, issued <laughs> Thanksgiving statements that omitted references to God as well. Yeah, really but they don't have anything yeah. to prove, so, you know. Well, exactly. They can let it slide. Well, yeah. Notably, though, Obama didn't acknowledge Allah, who is, of course, his God, right? Because oh, he's, he's, right. um, he's a Muslim. <laughs> he's a gay Muslim. We're atheist. supposed to keep that a secret. Um, but Mitt Romney perhaps didn't mention God because he worships the wrong God uh. as a as a Mormon. I'm shocked to see that Rick Santorum didn't mention God because he's all about the Jesus um, and the hating of the gays. Uh, Michelle Bachman, Herman Cain, and Rick Perry, however, did mention God in their statements, which comes as a shock to absolutely no one, I think. Mm. Hmm. But, uh, yeah, so uh, critics, you know, online critics jumped on Obama immediately. Holy cow! Is that one screwed up or what, says columnist Sherman Frederick of the Las Vegas Review, said somebody ought to remind Obama and his speechwriter that when Americans sit down around a meal today and give thanks, they give thanks to God. Yes, all Americans are giving thanks to God. By the way, a lot of Americans don't have any food. Thanks, yes. God. <laughs> Did you see the, the where Neil deGrasse... Tyson posted where he was at a table and everybody else thanked God, and then he thanked the farmers the, that grew the crops and the scientists mm. who, you know, who bred crops this, so, that, it, so that everybody could could eat and have, you know, a bountiful yield, and he was the only one who got to thank them, so. Hey, you know, that's, and that's the way it should be, right? Let's thank the people who made the food and thank the people who, who, who grew it. Who pick it and... Yes, and the people who um, are lucky enough to have jobs to to um, purchase food with and those of us who um, are struggling as many people in the United States and around the world, Greece, are, you know, um, be thankful for what you do have and let's try to make the world better for people who don't have. Speaking of religious oppression and uh, close-minded, old-fashioned people, the Catholic Church made an announcement recently. Let nobody say that they don't ever change. They're, That's right. they, they're not a fossilized institution. <laughs> they certainly, uh, they certainly do change. Exhibit A: A new Catholic Mass. 
Yay! <laughs> this one's this one's shortened and more open-minded and that sort of thing, right? Well, uh, uh, the language is a little different. Uh, <laughs> in that it's not entirely uh, the common language anymore? Yes, so they, what they did was that the, if uh, our Catholic historians will remember uh, that the Vatican II was the major change because they took it from the Latin right. and made it into the common language so everybody could understand it and they're not just mouthing words. And that was in the, what, mid-20th century? In the 60s, yeah. In the 60s, Pope John okay. the 23rd. So it's... Uh, it took them a while just to get. <laughs> that was always meant. Those changes were always meant to be relatively uh, updatable and temporary. But it mm. didn't get updated in for forty years. But now that they've sort of uh, made the language more theologically precise, yeah. and, and if and if you've been to Catholic churches before, you know it's, a lot of the stuff sounded like a praise rally where they have a lot of modern bands and stuff like mm. that. And they've tried to make it a little bit more the language. So, for example, they put in more theologically correct words like. Um, instead of one in being with the Father, they now say Jesus is consubstantial with the Father. Oh, that's I'd a like good to have word. to be like a guy yeah. getting something to rhyme with consubstantial. It's like, yeah, uh, right. and that they um, and that they say uh, it used to be that they would say I've sinned through my own fault, and now they say we have uh, greatly sinned through my fault, through my fault, through my own grievous fault, and strike their chest each time. That's a, that's, that's a good little ditty right there, isn't it? Yes. Through my fault, through my fault, through my own grievous fault. <laughs> Again, like tried it. to rhyme that with grievous. Yeah, I don't know if they pass out little uh, lashes that you could flagellate yourself, but uh, that's that but they, wasn't in this round. They're doing chest beating. Yes. That is, that's definitely a step back to the, uh, to the older school, for sure. Yeah, so as with everything else I think the people it's going to take people a while you know when you when when you heard pieces on the news about this people were doing the whole cranky thing where well I was just getting used to the beauty and of the old one and now we have to learn all this new stuff and think about what we're saying and so it's like you know pretty soon don't worry pretty soon you'll all be chanting in, in lockstep uh, and thinking in lockstep and it'll all just go back to the way it was yeah, it'll be interesting to see how the uh, the Catholic Church responds to all of the changes. And obviously, there are the more liberal and more conservative uh, Catholic parishes, and you know, some of them may uh, fully embrace this, and some of them maybe they'll update the church doctrine too. <laughs> <laughs> nah, I'm just kidding. They won't. <laughs> oh, Luke. Because what whatever was thought two thousand years ago still must be said. That's true. Uh, Absolutely right. Um, Hey, let's do something now that we haven't done in a long time and and probably should do more often. I feel kind of bad about it. Group hug? Um, No, no, No. that that I'm okay with going without. (laughs) Um, Let's dig into our mailbag here, our virtual mailbag, Uh, of course. We get mail? We we get some mail. Um, We've got a few emails that um, I thought we could... um, discuss and respond to here on the air. Um, The first one uh, from a listener named Donnie. He says, I've been an atheist for 15 years. Shut up, Donnie. (laughs) No, I had to say that. It's a a Lebowski thing. Lebowski. Nice. He's always being told by John Goodman to shut up. I I was right there with you. You're over your head, Donnie. Atheism has always been very natural for me, although I haven't always had the easiest time saying that I am an atheist out loud. Since I was 14 years old, I have been debating and arguing with religious people, including teachers and friends. That's awesome. 
love to love to hear from people who at that young already are are clued in and whether or not they they have processed everything yet at least they're having these discussions that's great to see it gets easier donnie yeah that's right um i've never been afraid of denying christianity or any other established religion but for years i would always fall back on agnosticism i think in the past this was due to my lack of understanding of science and not always having the best answers I would usually back down to agnosticism because I was unable to answer many of the tough questions that apologists would bring up. After reading The God Delusion, I stopped being afraid and began to seek out more answers and eventually joined my local skeptic group. Through them, I discovered your podcast, and I have never looked back. Hey, thanks. Wow. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, but here's, here's the meat of the email. I feel like you guys have the best arguments against nonsense that I have ever heard. I guess what I mean by this is that you guys crush nonsense into the ground and yet stand up and bury it again. I know why we have to take the arguments of our of our opponents seriously as these people have tremendous influence over a large part of the population. But what I struggle with is the how. How do you continue to take these arguments seriously? At some point, I begin to feel like we are out there yelling at invisible monsters and denouncing the existence of fairies. How do you choose which arguments are worth addressing and which are too ludicrous to even examine? Maybe I have just spent too much time looking at all of this and it just looks ridiculous to me, but I would appreciate any advice you can give. Thank you again and keep up the good work. Donnie. Well, thanks, Donnie. Uh, what do you guys think? How how do you um, a um, take these arguments seriously? I guess first the question is: Do you take these arguments seriously? It, I guess it depends on the argument, but personally, I view it like I deal. It's not so much of a difference to me from teaching, because I usually I I have learned over the years to, to you know what I what people are thinking and then. Uh, what I just viewed as rather than just the same old thing again is I, – I mean I do get frustrated on one level like, oh, this oh, sure. one again? Yeah. Right. Okay. Uh, but what I try to think of it as is an exercise in how could I be more clear this time in in responding to it. So each time I take a pass at it, I sort of clean up and try to, try to make my pre- delivery more and more precise of the correct, you know, to, the correct version of what you should – of the argument, you know. Right, right. Um, no. And re- regarding uh, staying motivated to it, yeah, uh, I mean, if shoot, if if you know ninety ninety percent of people believed in fairies and that you exactly know, airplanes right. must have invisible wings to, or, right, you know, flapping wings to hold them up or something mm-hmm. like, just these, uh, you know, if that was what people believe, then then that's of course going to be what we're motivated to, right, to talk about. And if these things get into the political process. Um, as they often do, not yeah. so much fairies, but yeah, yeah, right. And you know, if that's that's obviously going to be a motivation. Um, but regarding how we can handle continuing to to talk about these arguments, I mean, the combination of of authority that people, you know, apparent authority that people mm-hmm. have, and like emotionally compelling uh, rhetoric, right. Uh, Kind of can get any argument, however terrible, to be you know deserving of a critique, right? 
Which um, which um, ties in nicely with our discussion of uh, Ray Comfort's latest movie, which right. will be coming up in just a little bit. And yeah. obviously some arguments are, you know, better than others, you know, worse than others. Uh, but in terms of where it's probably very productive to aim mm-hmm. is, you know, those kinds of arguments that are just blatantly dishonest. Right. Or, you know, like obviously selecting evidence, you know, and I mean, people, you know, like William Lane Craig, you know, someone who's going to have that understanding of genocide and, and try to ju- to justify it in that way. Right. You know, needs to be discussed and, and needs to be shown for what it is. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there are plenty of lunatics out there, and um, I, I think we've more or less avoided any of the, at least taking seriously the critique of any really out there um, schools of thought, um, as in fringe stuff. What what you need to take seriously is the fact that. Other people take these ideas seriously. And when it's only one guy out there, no big deal. Right. Okay, he can believe that fairies right. are holding up the airplane. I don't care. It's not affecting anything. But when you have William Lane Craig, when you have Ray Comfort, when you have um, any of the people we've covered in depth on the show, they have people who believe them, who take this seriously, who model their lives on these beliefs these erroneous beliefs. Um, so um, you do have to keep uh, pointing it out. And no matter how ridiculous the argument is, like uh, you asked Donnie, um, is there anything that's just too ludicrous to even examine? I, I would say no, unless there's only one person who believes it. If enough people believe it, I don't care how absurd it is. Right. It's worth taking down because it is affecting the lives of many people. Yeah, I mean, you have these creationist ministries that are pumping however many, you know, millions of dollars into this entire intelligent design movement or something, you know. These presentations are very uh, persuasive if if you're not familiar with the actual content. If you don't know the science. Right. If you, so yeah. those kinds of things, those need perhaps a little bit more attention. Right. Um, it's ridiculous when Kirk Cameron says, if evolution were real, we'd see crocodiles. You know, but or it's how only come, ridiculous if you understand what evolution. How can we yeah, still have right. chimpanzees? Yeah, exactly. You know, and so it's like every time you hear that, the tendency is to roll the eyes and go, "Okay, this one again." But that person might not have ever right. heard that That's before. An they they to... might have grown up inside a bubble, yeah. and so you have to kind of adjust your your oh come on mentality with you know, well, <laughs> which is right, not always easy from this person's right. point of view. They they are not exposed to the same thing that we're exposed to. Exactly. So. I mean, we all started out well. Uh, it, speaking for those of us in the room. We all started out believing in things that we would now say are ludicrous. Oh yeah, you know. I often like think back. What what would I have thought of it if I had you know back when I had never been exposed to it? Yeah. I probably wouldn't want somebody to to roll their eyes and go, "Come on, idiot!" Right. I'm not even going to respond to that because then it would have been like you know that's. Yeah. I mean, they should be seen as perhaps opportunities. Yeah. Um. To you know to bring about this other other view. You know, let's maybe not. Uh, think of intuitions as the end all. Let's examine this a bit further. 
Right, right. And for us personally, the reason we keep doing it is because we wouldn't have a show without it, quite right. frankly. <laughs> if we didn't have a show, we'd have no reason to get up early on Sunday I'd mornings. be sitting home, yeah, playing games. Playing with your cats. Yeah. Um, I got to go. <laughs> our next email I wanted to address, this is um, from a listener who says, quote, My mother has recently gotten her first all-clear checkup from her doctor six months after surviving breast cancer. Fantastic. Excellent. Um, Great to hear. Uh, She's been a very courageous woman throughout the year-long ordeal and has certainly had an experience. Normally a fairly non-religious person in her daily life, the threat of cancer seemed to increase her thoughts of religion and God to a point where they became part of her daily affirmations of strength and comfort. The letter goes on. During the entire year, I wished I could help her find comfort in a more realistic way, but respect for her positive outlook was obviously paramount, and I never said a word. Six months after her final treatment, however, she has largely returned to her former non-religious self. She believes in the idea of a God, generally pretty charming and harmless. It only, I only bring it up as an anecdote because it forced me to think more about how thin and uncomforting the secular world seems to be for most people. Personally, I'm completely comforted and energized by my naturalist, atheistic outlook on life. It comforts me and brings me joy, but most struggle with the idea. Is there a discussion or interview opportunity here? I would love to hear from the medical community on the topic of cancer or life-threatening disease and the roles that religion and God play, or perhaps just to chat about how a secular outlook can manage to be comforting in a situation of mortality and struggle. Can we articulate how our outlook as atheists provide comfort for us personally? Can we conjure up atheistic comfort for those struggling around us? Oftentimes, my atheistic and naturalist philosophies bring me great joy and happiness, but seem unwieldy and useless while comforting others. Please hurry and write a book titled Atheistic Comfort for Those Sick and Dying. We're on it. (laughs) They fly off the shelves. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Um, I. And obviously, there is more to go into here, and I would love to—I'd love to get Barbara Ehrenreich on, um, who has dealt with cancer herself and um, has a lot to say about uh, this particular issue. But uh, what are your guys' thoughts? How do you feel that um, we can offer atheistic comfort yeah, to with, people? There's all kinds of research on cope, religion and coping. Obviously, people, you know, use that, and especially with cancer, because. The you know the, the the disease is so nebulous to people. You just go to instead of like having a heart attack or an amputation, right. you know, you go and the doctor says, "Oh, there's this thing growing inside you." And so because of the sort of mm-hmm. ambiguous course of it, it readily elicits these attributions to God and like He's sending me a message. Oh, I got better. There's a remission. Oh, and I got worse. So it's a, it's a very sort of prime to be a supernaturally attributed disorder. But as far as the comfort aspect. I think it is I mean there is a point that there is a hard sell to most people in saying yeah. you know there is no everlasting paradise where you're going to be reunited with your loved yeah. ones that that is sort of a you're going to go to sleep forever is yeah. a hard sell but I but again I think that f- the for most people that I know that that became or or atheist it's the the comfort aspect takes a second place to the truth aspect. And as right. much as they would like to believe – I would like to believe certain things, but I can't bring myself to believe them when right. I don't think that it's true. Right. 
maybe when you're, you know, I don't think anybody would blame somebody who's scared about mortality and desperate if they're, you know, or in pain or something like that, if they sort of said, well, maybe I'd like, well, like Steve Jobs, for example, when they, the interviewer mm-hmm. asked him, you know, do you think there's something else? He sort of wavered like, oh, wouldn't that be nice if there was? But then right. he sort of pulled back and said, but who knows? And, you know, right. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we can't compete with uh, everlasting paradise. I mean, we can't we can't do that. But we'll, but I think we do have some advantages, um, some emotional advantages. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, if one's purpose is imposed from the outside, then you know that that's that seems at least as uh, it seems emotionally not as as emotionally compelling as being able to provide your own purpose. Um, to you know, achieve those things which align with your values, your right. family, your friends. Um, yeah, I think that can you're be not a very just, compelling, right. uh, and and that is a hard thing for people to wrap their heads around when they've spent their whole lives thinking, I was, I'm fated to do this. This right. is my reason for right. being rather than God or whatever. Rather than you get to define your own. Right. You're no longer. I mean, you kind of. That that transition is like while well, you used to be a means to an end mm-hmm. of some outside being or, or personifying that the illness has to be in somebody was in charge of it because that leads to a certain blaming of like why yeah. is God doing this I never you know for whatever disadvantages with the atheist's view with sickness and mortality and coping I don't have to blame anybody nobody right. could have done otherwise it's right. just right. stuff happens and it's unfortunate right. but there's nobody to blame and yeah. that is and that not, is weirdly comforting too that stuff happens things just happen. Right. It's not necessarily I was a bad person, so I have cancer. Right. Obviously, you're, you're there are not causes just, for some cancers. Right. But. You're not just a pawn in someone's game. You're not right. being. You're not quite literally a tool. I think yeah. You're your own entity. And then many, you know, many atheists, and you could read, a, you know, of things like uh, people in their sick bed or deathbed who have dealt this. They they frame their illness as in terms of things like, for example, my. I can be a model to others of how to deal with coping and death. Like mm-hmm. my, my, sure. I can do this with dignity or I can, you know, I can develop compassion for other people through my sickness. I can learn, you know, it makes me a better person to sympathize with other people or, you know, I'm providing a legacy to my kids and grandkids right. of how I deal with this. Right. It's still a much harder sell than... It's more abstract. Than, yeah, yeah. Well, which is weird because the ultimate abstraction is after <laughs> death, you get to right. go to Care Bear land, you know. <laughs> so... God, no. I think, I think <laughs> another <laughs> thing, though, is, you know, just something as kind of fundamental as privacy of mind. An omniscient being knows exactly what you're thinking. Right. Uh, I think one of the most uh, almost liberating things is that, you know, your thoughts really are your own. You can't be convicted of thought crime. Um, You know, you're... Well, not yet. (laughs) But if you've been watching the news, it's coming. So, yeah, I mean, like, it's, it's nice to know that, like, at least for now, you know, you're judged... Not by what pops into your mind in mm-hmm. any particular moment, but rather the outcomes of the deliberations right. and, you know, your moral concerns uh, and, you know, how those actually manifest in, in the form of action. You know, that's what we should be, you know, those actions are the things that we need to be condemning or praising and not, you know, 
uh, those kinds of thoughts that we have, you know, where we're just, you know, everyone has like horrible thoughts every now and then. Like, oh, that's we recognize them as horrible and we don't do anything about them, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it almost seems to me that the the comforts of uh, religious perspective are really meant for the the survivors, are meant for the people on the outside. Like if if someone dies from cancer or, or illness or even accidents and you can say, yes, but they were a good person, so they're in heaven. And that comforts me as the outsider. Right. For the person who's actually going through it, um, and I say this having never been that person who's going through it, um, I can see how it would be much more comforting to say that I can do something good with my life even if I'm sick or I have done good things with my – I have these children. I have these things um, that I've done, that I've accomplished. That That's where I get my immortality or that's probably too highfalutin. But this is where I will live on is in the good things I did. Right. Um, and yeah. that seems to me a better focus than than saying, I'm not entirely sure what happens after I die, but I hope it's going to be nice and Jesus yeah, see, tells I me think it the, will be. The, it's the lack of being sure. You know, it's like I've talked about before with some of my research on that curvilinear type effect. It's the people who are sort of don't know and are confused and unsure. They do have a tough time yeah. because that's when death and cancer and coping, that's when a rubber meets the road. But I, of the people that I look at that are utterly confident in their in their atheism or even agnosticism or whatever, that, that, that it doesn't really bug them that much because they're just – they're beyond – the whole maybe there is something, maybe there, you know, and, and it's like there is nothing and that's okay. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, uh, there isn't um, there isn't that, that tension of having to know, like maybe the, I have the wrong answer or something. Then right. that would be sort of torturous on your deathbed to, to think I could. And, and by the way, people coming in and saying you need to get right with God. I've heard of friends of people saying, you know, you need to uh, sort of forcing a religion on the unsure people as right. they're dying. Mm -hmm. And I think that's reprehensible. I, I agree. Mm -hmm. I think that's it's disgusting. Well, let's move on from the mailbag. And um, speaking of things growing inside one's body that you don't want, um, let's talk about abortion. Uh, <laughs> we might want another transition. Uh, <laughs> Is he going to go to the alien movie or abortion? Let's uh, let's talk Ray Comfort. Good old Ray Comfort, the banana man, just to poison the well a little bit. I'm sure most of our listeners are familiar with his atheist nightmare video with his banana, mm. um, how banana proves that evolution didn't happen. That's yeah. just too good. It's <laughs> yeah, and I think we've talked about that yeah. plenty on the show before. But he has a video that came out what a a month or uh, yeah, just a just a few months ago, I think. Um, and it's been making the rounds all over the interwebs, and, right, and right? People are talking about it. Uh, yeah, so I mean, if, if you've been trolling on the interwebs, you've you've probably come across this. Uh, One eighty is what it's called. Uh, the banner at the top of the website, 180movie.com, says a shocking, award-winning documentary. I'm shocked it won awards, I can say yeah. that. Especially because it's half an hour long. Right. To call it a movie. I mean, it's a short film at best. Right, but, exactly. Okay. So, on uh, Ray Comfort's blog, hilariously titled Atheist Central, uh, it has this description. Quote, it's a 33-minute movie that exposes abortion for what it is. 
the legalized murder of human beings. It's a fast-moving and fascinating roller coaster ride that will stir your emotions in a good way, and like a roller coaster ride, once you start, you won't be able to get off. It has reached almost 1.6 million YouTube views in less than two months and is changing people's minds about the hot-button issue of abortion. So, oh, which does, does he offer any empirical data to show that it's changing people's minds about the hot-button issue of abortion? Well, uh, apparently the, you know, the four or five people that uh, have changed their mind <laughs> on the actual end of the video. Within the, in the movie itself. Right. Yeah, yeah. So changing minds, plural, he's got about four that we can count so far. Yeah, well, um, and of course, as quickly as they change their mind within the video... Who's to say 20 minutes after they were right. off camera they won't and actually being assaulted? Have, that, you know, some actual real argumentation that will change their mind the other way. Yeah, um, exactly. So in this movie, Ray's motives are very clear. He wants to draw an analogy between abortion in America and, get this, the Holocaust. Yeah. In fact, the first uh, of this 33-minute movie, the first 13 minutes are all about Hitler. And the Holocaust. Yeah, Not a much. single mention of abortion until um, uh, just over 13 minutes into it. So yep. almost half of the movie is just about Hitler. And and it starts off hilariously with Ray Comfort asking what well, looks like mostly college students, right? right? Um, if they know who Adolf Hitler is. To me, quite frankly, when I first watched the video, it starts off with him saying it was Adolf Hitler. I, for a lot of these Americans that he's that he's interviewing, perhaps the accent they didn't understand him. Not the, I mean the Kiwi accent, the the New Zealand accent is beautiful, and right. we love all of you. But I'm wondering if some of the people that he's asking this question to just didn't understand him because that's possible. It opens up with this montage of people saying, "I, I don't know, he was a communist." A lot of people say he was a communist. Because both of them are evil, Nazis and communists, so they must be the same ideology. Right. Exactly. Even though they fought a titanic struggle. Yeah. So, and... so the responses to that question, you know, they're, they're all just kind of strung together and edited in such a way, you know, as to suggest that the majority of young people literally have no idea who yeah. Adolf Hitler is. It, it's like um, jaywalking right. with Jay Leno. You know, it's find the dumbest people you can. Exactly. So, uh, which, you know, the viewer, of course, finds troubling. Uh, mm -hmm. So already we're getting into some pretty sketchy tactics. Yes. If you want to produce a film that makes what you think is an important argument about such an important issue, yeah. starting off by suggesting an apparent lack of awareness of an important issue or person by streaming together all only those embarrassing responses by high school dropouts. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that's not how you get a compelling. It's really case. the Fox News approach to man on the street interviews. Right. Let's not broadcast Jesse LaGreca. Let's broadcast people who don't. And then know they, they suggest that Hitler worked with Margaret Sanger in a in to kill black babies somehow. Uh, along yeah. With Jews. It's like piecing yeah. together all that stuff. And historically, correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't Adolf Hitler quite a proponent of anti-family planning? and birth control that is he wanted the good uh, at least for the Absolutely. good Aryan women to populate the fatherland it was uh, when is the saying kinder kuchen ki uh, church and kitchen and children is basically yeah. what women were supposed he, to do he was and, a Catholic I mean right. it, and uh, however much he actually believed in we've talked about right right Hitler it's, on, it's, on it's really before. an irrelevant argument but the, exactly. but the point is but, yeah I mean 
he had these views and he had he was promoting certain things and uh you know those potentially changed with who he was talking yeah. to of course and, and he was he was an anti-semite and and Ray Comfort uses all of these examples to prove that Hitler was an anti-semite and it's like <laughs> not necessary dude <laughs> yeah. we, we kind of right. got that one covered <laughs> So uh, as surprising as it may sound, the movie is not the rigorous documentary that takes an honest and nuanced and in-depth look at the complex contemporary moral issue that is abortion uh, that we would expect from Ray Comfort and that kid from Growing Pains. Yes. Um, So Ray continues and he, he asks a series of questions. Uh, where he's trying to get the end result and, you know, where people will just say that they value human life. So he's asking questions, and, and he's going up to people randomly on the street and doing this. He's, he's coming up with questions like, would you cover up a mass grave with a bulldozer if you knew yes. that there were some still alive and that and a Nazi had a gun to your head? Like, yes. Really, like, kind of intense questions. Well, it's like a really extreme version of, of the trolley. The trolley, the trolley problem. problem. Yeah, so. the trolley problem where... where you know, would you pull the lever to derail the tr- right. trolley so that kills one man instead of killing ten right. people? This is, would you bulldoze a mass grave where some people are still alive right. if or, they held a gun to your head? Or, or would shoot, you them, shoot yourself. them And people are saying, ah, I would do the mass grave thing. And, and, some, and some of them said, no, absolutely Ray's, not. Ray's rightly pointing out that, look, wouldn't shooting them, putting them out of their misery be the more compassionate thing? Absolutely. You know? and, um, that's that's given, of course, that you're going to do something with a gun to your head anyway. Well, something or, is morally and, reprehensible, and, and many people will not. And and there were, you know, there are people on both sides of it. But it, there's right. a big difference between, um, from a psychological perspective, between you know pushing the the dirt into a hole versus shooting people by yourself. We've talked about this before with the the trolley problem too. Um, it, but he's setting all this up. He's tr- really trying to cause cognitive dissonance right. what with he's these trying people. To do That's he's, why he's doing this. He's trying to get them to say, uh, well, oh, it sounds like you value human life. And then they say yes. yes. And he goes, well, what are your views on abortion? And then, of course, the rest of the movie is, is, is primarily on this topic. Do they ever say an embryo is not a human life? It's just an embryo? Nope. Not a, and, and I bet you that... Of all of the people he interviewed for this video, because it, you know, it's at least supposedly man on the street, just random people, I would bet that he found some people who said, it's not a baby, it's a fetus, it's an embryo, it's right. – but not a single one of or those somebody with, with shows up in the movie. Facts of biology, like what would you say if you knew somebody had killed around two-thirds of all life? Well, that would be a barbarian – well – Two-thirds of all embryos are spontaneously aborted, so God obviously does not care, exactly. care one whit about the, about the human life. Because if an embryo is a human life, most of them are going to die at God's hands. Yeah, yeah. Great impression, by the way. Yeah. So, but he goes through the first 13 minutes of the movie not talking about abortion at all, talking about – the. by the way, it, it really struck me that they show footage of – of um, Holocaust victims, right. uh, uh, dead bodies, and it's it's horrific. Did you notice they censored the image for yeah. nudity? Yep. They blurred out nudity, but they still showed yep. dozens of dead bodies stacked on top of was, each other. 
Like, that was interesting. I mean, that tells you a lot about about Ray Comfort right there. Look, look at the butchered fetus. Oh, but let's put black boxes on their private parts. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So, uh, so you know, after he, you know, he's asking them about abortion, and, and the responses are, um, you know, they're generally the the pro-choice side. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, there's a lot of people pointing out, you know, good points. Like, you know, this is, these are tricky situations sometimes you know mm-hmm. it's far too easy to judge when you're not the person in the situation when you're divorced from the reality of it mm-hmm. um and you know someone rightly points out that uh well it's it's you know yeah it's a life in the sense that it's functioning biology mm-hmm. uh but that doesn't uh you know it's not as much of a life as it is you know three three to six months later um so after she says that uh, it's 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 almost kind of humorous. He cuts to um, he cuts to a 3D rendering of a rotating fetus and yeah. footage of actual fetuses in the womb, uh, and this is all accompanied by techno music. Yes. And Ray's voice saying, "This is actual footage of a baby in the womb at just six weeks, six days of age. You can clearly see the baby's eyes, hands, and heartbeat." He doesn't address this again. He expects this to actually be good enough reason to compare fetuses with actual, like, fully formed persons. Right. He with goes post-birth on, humans. Right, right. He goes on to ask them uh, a fill-in-the-blank question. It's okay to kill a baby in the womb when? And then he expects people to fill it in. And yeah. this, of course, assumes that killing is the proper term for what this actual baby. And baby. I mean, right, it's an right. entirely leading statement. It's okay to kill a baby in the womb when... Right, and it's right. like, I mean, yeah, what we, do you say to that? We need to be deciding whatever it is that Ray is calling a baby is actually a person capable mm-hmm. of being killed right. or saved for that matter. Didn't any of the people he interviewed use the term zygote? Nope. Nope. Oh. <laughs> and, and because he always says baby... He always says, kill a baby in the womb, killing right. a baby in the womb. It's, it's, he, it's always tugging on those intuitions. It's always kill. It's always baby. It's never terminate a pregnancy. Right. It's never, um, and he would say, I guess. Disrupt that, a natural process. Yeah, right. It, it's the people that he's talking to use that language as well. So he's he's very good at manipulating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, now clearly, uh, whether or not a biological thing has entity or has eyes hands and has blood pumping through itself is not the only thing we look for in deciding if something is a person in a morally relevant sense right uh you know it sure seems that conscious experience or the ability to feel pain is something that needs to be among this list Mm -hmm. um in a report released last year from the royal college of obstetricians and gynecologists entitled fetal awareness uh, several important yet perhaps unsurprising findings uh, are further confirmed. One, that the fetus cannot feel pain before 24 weeks mm-hmm. because the connections in the fetal brain are not fully formed. They, they don't have the, the nervous system for it. Right. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, two, that evidence showed that the fetus, while in the chemical environment of the womb, is in a state of induced sleep and is unconscious. Uh, three, uh, that the working party concluded that because the 24-week-old fetus has no awareness, nor can it feel pain, the use of of analgesia, I think is how you say it, 
is of no benefit. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, lastly, that more research is needed on the short and long-term effects of the use of, of these fetal analgesias uh, post-24 weeks. Right. So, I mean, but even if we ignore this, it still does not get Ray the analogy that he wants to uh, be forwarding in this video. Even if we grant that a six-week-old embryo is morally relevant in the exact same way and in the exact and to the exact same degree that a six-year-old child is, right? It still does not necessarily mean that in all cases, such a thing would be absolutely morally wrong. And this seems especially true in cases of rape. Uh, the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy talks of a thought experiment that is uh, very relevant to this. Quote, in her thought experiment, and the one we're talking of is, is one by Judith Thompson in her 1971 article, A Defense of Abortion. Mm -hmm. In her thought experiment, we are asked to imagine a famous violinist falling into a coma. The Society of Music Lovers determines from medical records that you and you alone can save the violinist's life by hooking up or by being hooked up to him for nine full months. The music lovers break into your home while you're asleep and hook the unconscious and unknowing, hence innocent, violinist to you. You may want to unhook him, but you are then faced with this argument put forward by the music lovers. Mm -hmm. The violinist is an innocent person with a right to life. Unhooking him would result in death. Therefore, it is, uh, therefore unhooking him would be morally impermissible. So this is an interesting argument for those who want to think of abortion in these simplistic, absolute terms. Mm -hmm. The you in this experiment can be thought of as analogous to a, a rape victim. Right. You get forced into a state of affairs where another completely innocent entity is fully dependent on you for their very life. Uh, very for few 10 months. Right, right. Yeah. Very few people would say that you're morally obligated to remain attached to this person for a full nine months. It would, of course, be an incredibly generous thing for you to do. Mm -hmm. But claiming that it is a moral obligation is quite another thing. Right. Uh, I don't think this perfectly dissolves a moral issue at all, but it certainly shows that it's much more complex than Ray wants to show in his documentary. Yeah, and, and of course, it, he addresses rape. Um, someone... Uh, talks about, you know, abortion. What about cases of rape? And he says, well, rape is bad, but why would you punish the child for the father's sins? Which, by the way, isn't that what God does? <laughs> right. Um, Come on. Up into the third and fourth generation. But, <laughs> but he just he just kind of brushes off rape. Well, yeah, rape is bad, but and then they talk about like the idea of adoption after birth. Right. And that's, you know yeah. what? I'm fine. If you want to put your child up for adoption um, for right. an unwanted pregnancy, that is fine. Uh, understand that the adoption um, uh, system is not perfect by any means. There are a lot of children who don't have homes. If it's right. not a white, healthy child, right. it's, it's difficult to place them in a home. Um, and, and also you still have that pregnancy you have to go through. That can disrupt your life. Right. Um, if, if you're a victim of rape or, you know, I don't, it doesn't even have to be rape, but certainly if you're a victim of rape, for nine months you have to live with a constant reminder, a painful, difficult, constant right. reminder of this rape so that you can give birth 
to right. this thing that and you never wanted and then put it out uh, for adoption? It's a very strange response from from uh, from Ray Comfort saying that, you know, yeah, rape is bad, mm-hmm. but, you know, th- this is worse. Uh, if he were to read, I think it's Numbers 11, yeah. it talks about how uh, in cases of, of suspected infidelity uh, that um, they're I think it's like the the woman can drink some some concoction, right? Causing her to miscarry. Yeah. Uh, so, so that seems to so not God <laughs> is saying that abortion is okay. Well, back right? to the back to the argument that 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 um, they always would talk about the health, the pseudoscience that that somehow that your health is worsened by having an abortion. They talk about all this yeah. things that you bet like your cancer risk is increased. And it's like when you look at the stats, it's pretty obvious the most dangerous thing you could do in that sense is carry a child to term and yeah. give a, have a childbirth is much more yeah, dangerous than right. a safe medical abortion. Right. Yeah. So if, if health is your argument, uh, somebody would be much more – especially young teens that shouldn't be pregnant you know, before their ability to well, carry the kid. They should, they're much safer having an abortion if that's what you're worried and about. And mental health too because the number one response that women who have had an abortion have is a sense of relief. Yeah, all this yeah stuff there I'm... are some who regret it. There are some who feel bad about it. Of right. course, that's – I mean that's true with that, That's going to have a lot to do with, with your with – With the, the culture around them. Yeah, exactly. Your, yeah. your metaphysics. But relief sense. is the number one um, experience women have after an abortion. In psychology field, uh, the psychiatric field, they've tried to push through post-abortion, post-abortion syndrome as a diagnosis. Mm. Uh, and uh, you know, in fact, when the APA issued a report on this with controlled statistics controlling for how the women felt before – any differences with abortion went away. That is, yes, some people were upset after the abortion because they're upset beforehand. Yeah, and right. so it wasn't a result of it, you know. So it's not going to show up in the DSM five. Huh? I no hope not. Hope not. So, so. Yeah, yeah. So as you might have guessed, uh, the kind of disgusting simplicity with which Ray deals with this issue. Yeah. Uh, has garnered the attention of the Jewish Anti-Defamation League. Yeah, good. Yeah, the Anti-Defamation League, which was founded in 1913, is the world's leading organization fighting really? anti-Semitism. Really, in 1913? Wow, yeah. I didn't realize it went back that far. That's impressive. <laughs> I mean, this is this is pre-World uh, War II that uh, they were around. Right. And, oh, okay, right. interesting. Uh, in, an article in the Christian Newswire uh, states... Quote, the Anti-Defamation League today derided as cynical and perverse a movie that unequivocally compares the murder of millions of Jews and others in the Holocaust to women having abortions in the United States, mm-hmm. calling the film one of the most offensive and outrageous abuses of the memory of the Holocaust we have seen in years. Yeah. I, I, it's, I mean, if, if Ray Comfort is, in fact... Jewish, and I have no reason to doubt it. This is incredibly insulting mm-hmm. to his own people, right? To all people, truly, but um, especially uh, to Jewish people. It's you cannot compare a woman's choice to eliminate an unwanted pregnancy to the mass organized extinction of an entire race of people, right? Or to put it another way, you know, if a Mississippi blastocyst 
was actually a person and could access YouTube and watch this video, <laughs> even it would be deeply offended and insulted by the trash and caricature of it of this serious moral issue. Absolutely right. And speaking of Mississippi, though, good news from there. Yeah. On our last episode, we spoke spoke of the uh, um, the personhood amendment to the state constitution. Yep, and it failed. Even in Mississippi, um, uh, a woman's right to choose won out. So that's fantastic news. Anyway, yeah, he uh, his his and his history is bad too. They always try to tar. They they have this mixture of the birth control movement with all these facts like the Holocaust and eugenicists. And some you know there are some facts that are true, like Margaret Sanger from who originated the Planned Parenthood movement. She was a eugenicist in the sense that she believed that you know fit people should reproduce more than unfit people. Although she didn't necessarily apply it to broad racial categories. It it wouldn't be a forced thing. That's what not what her view was. It was uh, just that encouragement of. And you hear like Herman Herman Cain is on her about like a abortionist or, or efforts to kill black babies. If you look at the history though, the the Harlem uh uh, the black people in Harlem asked Margaret Sanger to come and, and talk and set up a clinic. And at that time, W.E.B. Du Bois supported Because that. they had a lot of unwanted pregnancies. Yeah. Because, you know what? Poor communities do. That's right. where you see. And they don't have, I you mean, have even. The kind of sex education that. Yeah, absolutely. And pre-Roe versus Wade, it was a lot harder for poor people to get back alley abortions than it was rich people. Yeah, if you read a, a history of the uh, of this movement, there's an article in the New Yorker called Birthright by Poor Lepore. Joel yeah, Lepore. Uh, birthright. It's a fascinating history of how of how the the family planning movement has actually flipped political sides. It actually used to be mm. something supported across, I guess you could call them now, conservative and liberal lines because it was viewed as uh, a lot of conservatives, especially the social Darwinists, were scared about poor people reproducing. And so you had these like capitalist heroes now of the Christian right. At that time, they were uh, full force behind birth control and family planning because they thought that poor people were going to outproduce rich people. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, even like Barry Goldwater, Which, I think. Which, by the way, poor was, people have out reproduced rich people well, we are the 99 percent we've but made yes. them poor after they've uh, <laughs> yeah, born. Right. that's how that changed uh and that it, you know that that is birth control and family planning you know it was only since like the 60s and 70s that it started to shift in a decisive way liberal mm-hmm. uh yeah. and, and that uh you know it used to be viewed as something that that conservatives would get behind too like nixon and it was just you know there's there's this um, – there was support for things like global family planning because people were freaked out about the population increasing. As well they should be, uh, yeah, 7 billion now people. Now 7 billion people. And so they, they, they viewed it as being just sensible policy that you'd want mm-hmm. to promote birth control and uh, and those aspects. But then the Catholic right. Church and the the religious right get involved, and suddenly it becomes a conservative issue. And let's face yeah. it, the the, uh, the the people who are strongly anti-abortion, they're not just. Uh, it's not just the the specific abortion issue. There, it's tied to their views on sexuality as well. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And so, you know, the the forms in Mississippi, the, the, they would have banned a lot of forms of birth control that that prevent implantation of any mm-hmm. fertilized egg. Right. And so that you know, and when you corner people about that and say, but what about women who blah 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 or what about you know, then they go back to well, they should have. They shouldn't have had sex then. That's something they should have thought about. So you right. almost always, when you push it, out comes this attitude about controlling women's sexuality. Yeah. Right. And and that, you know, these speeches about, well, 
and, and the birthright article talked about this too, that at the time, you know, during Margaret Sanger's time, the argument was, well, if women could control their uh, their birth and planned families, whatever, what's to stop them from having no consequences for illicit sexual activity? Oh, I guess the same yeah. thing that yeah. don't stop men from having uh, illicit right. consequences from <laughs> exactly. their sexual activity. Exactly. So. Mm. That's why God mm. created AIDS, Luke. <laughs> we like having these yeah. little, yes, various sexual expressions. So. Yeah, yeah. It, it, I mean, there's uh, that's obviously the heart of this video. There was other things in there that I thought were um, worth pointing out. Uh, at one point, Ray Comfort um does acknowledge that raping and bank robbery can be fun. Yes, that's a quote. Um, <laughs> and he he does this thing, which is fairly typical Ray Comfort, where he says, have you ever lied? Oh, right, right. Oh, yeah, I've lied. And what do you call a person who lies all the time? A liar. Have you ever stolen anything? Oh, well, yeah, I guess. And what do you call a person who steals things? A robber. And then, he, so he gets them to admit that they are liars and stealers and fornicators right. and blasphemers as if this is a good way to judge a person's like overall yeah, character exactly and then you know says well if you're going to be judged fairly where would you go when you died well, i guess i'd go to hell that's why you need to accept Repent. jesus <laughs> yeah and the last like 10 minutes are all just him preaching yeah. at people. Isn't you know. that like the 10 question? I like the interview of Hitchens when he was on one of those shows. I think it was one of those talk radio shows where they tried to do the same scripted thing I'm in and he yeah, wouldn't yeah. play ball. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally. They're like, you know, well, what do you, you know, wouldn't it be good to be watched all the time by Ben and his, no, I don't think it would be. That's totalitarianism. And he's like totally turns the, yeah. gives the <laughs> guy, he never gives the guy the answer, the, just the simplistic <laughs> answer that he wants. Right. And of course, throughout the movie, you start off with people who are saying, "Yeah, I'm, I'm pro-choice," right. and then at the end, the end they're like, "It's a few people to to like, say, oh. yeah, no, I will vote differently on abortion,' yeah. as if abortion were up for a vote." Right. But the best is the neo-Nazi. There's a neo-Nazi that mm. he interviews with with a huge spiky mohawk and he's Steve, covered in, I think his yeah, name. and and <laughs> he's. Um, at the end, Ray Comfort kind of gets to him, and you can almost see a tear in the neo-Nazi's eye as he realizes he's a bad person. Or no, maybe the, the, he should think about it. Oh, is that what it was? A tear tattoo. <laughs> by the way, the neo-Nazi has a Bible at home that he says he's going to go home and read. But oh. Uh, oh, yeah. it, the whole thing, it is so set to play. It's all emotional uh, yeah. Scare tactics. What I want to do is like raid the vault of where the other footage is. Absolutely. Like, because you, you know love there's got to be great yeah. stuff there. Shall we go on to some Got Things Like You? Sure. He does. Now, recently, I, I, I know you guys saw this. I. I hope some of our listeners uh, are familiar with this story, too, because I'm interested to hear what uh, what you and what our listeners think about this is at uh, Skepticon recently, which is a, um, a conference for skeptics, atheists. Skeptical so convicts, it is. Yeah, yes. Um, which is, where is it? Springfield, Missouri. Missouri. Springfield, Missouri. Yeah. Okay. At Skepticon. There was this guy selling gelato, a store called Gelato Mio, 
and they were offering a 10% discount to anyone who came in from Skepticon. Um, they got 10% discount on their gelato, and everything was going great. And then in the afternoon, apparently, when business slowed down a bit, the owner, a guy named Andy, um, wandered down to Skepticon to see what was going on. I believe it took place in a mall or something like that. And he happened to walk in while uh, Sam Singleton, the atheist evangelist, was speaking. Mm. I don't know if you're familiar with with, uh, Sam Singleton. He does this very over-the-top... Kind of a preacher man. Yeah, very much. Yeah, it's it's a a preacher character um, who really tries to offend religious sensibilities. That's that's his shtick, you know. Not the general tone of Skepticon. This guy wandered down and he heard this atheist evangelist speaking and was offended. So he went back to his store, this gelato store, and put a sign up in the window. That said, and I quote, Skepticon is not welcome to my Christian business. Now, of course, our libertarian listeners out there are going to say, yeah, absolutely. It's his right to do that. Great. Good for him. I'm not addressing you, libertarian listeners. (laughs) (laughs) But obviously, um, he put this up. People were upset. There's been a lot of conversation about it on the web. Um, Apparently, the sign was only up for 10 minutes or so. It sounded like he fired it off when he was mad and then thought better of it. Exactly. He was was, uh, upset. He put up the sign, and about 10 minutes later, he went, "Mm, that wasn't the right thing to do. We've all done something like that. Yeah, um, although we haven't necessarily <laughs> broken the law right, when right. when we got upset because, again, libertarian listeners are going to love How this. How many times I've had to take down the Jews stay out of my side of my <laughs> office door <laughs> exactly. when I thought better about it. Exactly. Um, but he did – he has <laughs> since offered a, a – I feel very sincere apology of I'm sorry I was upset. Uh, I didn't mean it and by the way – he thought Skepticon was going to be about UFOs and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So he didn't really know what it was about. He was upset when he heard um, Sam Singleton overreacted, put up this sign. And he apologized. He said, this was an impulsive response, which I fully acknowledge was completely wrong and unacceptable. The sign was posted for about 10 minutes or so before I calmed down, came to my senses and took it down. For what it's worth, nobody was turned away. Now, that's probably true. I also wonder how many people saw the sign and didn't go in as a result. Right. He realized that he was just hurting his own business by turning away potentially hundreds of customers. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. He, said, uh, he goes on to say, I strongly believe that everyone, everybody is entitled to their beliefs. I'm not apologizing for my beliefs, but rather for my inexcusable actions. I was wrong. Uh, so this seems I like a very that's... sincere apology. He shouldn't have done it. It was up for 10 minutes. He was pissed off. He apologized. No harm done. PZ Myers is not accepting the apology, of course. Mm, what a shock. Quite, quite frankly, my, my yeah. question to the people who don't think it's an adequate apology Like, what is, could be? Yeah. Exactly. And, and considering the offense... Yes, it was wrong. Yes, it was discriminatory. It was 10 minutes. 
at a gelato store. Right. Okay. This wasn't, uh, uh, and he apologized. He apologized at length. He acknowledged so, he did something wrong and yes, apologized for it. I, but, don't, I don't see how we can demand any any more than that. Yeah, but we definitely see bias against right. atheists in this action, even if he came to realize that it was wrong. Right. And I like the, the headlines like gelato owner cools down. That sort of yeah. thing. It just sells, you know. You love puns, though. Yeah. That works out great. <laughs> For atheists, one of the worst things we can do, and you guys can disagree with me, is to keep hammering this oh. guy and no, saying, I, I shame on you, shame on you. It's, That's going to make us look worse. Interesting uh, kind of counterpoint to this and, and discrimination against atheists, people not thinking very highly of atheists, is an article from the Institute for Emerging Ethics and Technologies. They have an article on their website that points out that the uh, current most charitable individuals in the United States, best based on estimated lifetime giving, the top three are Warren Buffett, Bill and Melinda Gates, and George Soros. What do those all have in common? Well, they're all very rich, oh, okay. and they are all atheists. Hmm. Hmm. So we see um, a lot of negative opinion towards atheists, the American Cancer Society, um, and so forth. But what we're actually seeing in practice is some very active, charitable Atheists. Yeah, I'm actually in the middle of this debate because you do find – and then people come back at that with counter things like, well, yes, these are visible people and, yes, they're generous. Mm-hmm. Thanks very much. These are anecdotes. But these are anecdotal things and if you look at the – we've talked about in the show before about the um, people who have sort of taken the average – charitable donations and volunteering and pro-social behavior exactly. and, and s- argued that religious people give more to charity mm-hmm. and, and, and donate more and that on average, even though they have these exceptions, um, you know, it, it's a, it, the religious have the advantage even to secular charities. But when you actually break down the data, though, the, there are several objections to that argument. And I was looking at some of these were on the comments to to that article. Yeah. Uh, and that, you know, that some Christian came on and said, hey, atheist right. survey data shows religious people are more charitable. But if you scroll down a bit, then there's somebody brings up the point that, that in my mind and that was is that – um, we've we've talked about on the show before about the way that things are set up around in this in these parts at least is that um, a lot of giving in America is private charitable giving and we are relatively stingy when it comes to governmental uh, commitment giving right. things right. Mm-hmm. and in contrast to like if you look at some of these and there's you can look at the rankings actually on the computer the foreign policy magazine does this commitment to development index that shows how much each nation gives on average per adjusted for their population and their mm-hmm. GDP. Uh, so in other words, it's a measure of giving as a, a national front to things like development nations and healthcare and all that stuff. Right. And, you know, as it, with every other survey, the Scandin- Scandinavian nations kick butt. The top ones there are like Sweden, Norway, Denmark, right. you know. I'm so moving to Norway. And so <laughs> when you look at when the when the, these surveys separate out private giving – 
yes, the people in the United States give more privately and religious people have an edge, but that's because there's sort of a, a, a split in the more religious in, in, in our country, the more conservative you are, the more you support private giving and oppose public giving. That is Tea right. Party. You don't want to be mm-hmm. taxed to have your money go to a common pool and then have some bureaucrat decide who needs the money on official, you know, some sort of you want to give it yourself right. when you control for that sort of thing uh then the differences flip the other way and that the more secular areas actually support more things like i want to be taxed more and everybody to be taxed yeah. more right. and i want the government to decide who social get the money. uh programs social d- democracy yeah. socialism social well and, and of course george soros um being number three on the list he's a huge donor to to union groups and to democratic movements and to populist movements and that sort right. of thing. He's he's a he's a big old lefty, and while these people Warren Buffett, Bill Melinda Gates, George Soros, all very rich, they're not necessarily the three richest people in the country. Yeah, you don't want to like say like stock value. And, clearly, atheists are are the richest people in the country, which is why the economy is so screwed up. No, atheists <laughs> are the one. Uh, uh, topping the list of of making these um, donations. Well, you you mentioned at the beginning of the show that the passing of our local um, uh, uh, philanthropist, uh, Meyer, Fred Meyer. And he was actually, uh, relative to some of the other people in the area, known as somewhat progressive. Uh, Well, yeah. The other big families... other big families tend to give a lot, you know, with things like the the Van Andels, DeVosses, and and you know the Dutch elite. Yes. Give Meyer gave to to things that weren't necessarily always supporting his own little political views. Right. He, mm-hmm. he actually tried to stay relatively apolitical. But there was an anecdote in his obituary where one of the conservative sort of people in the area say, "We need to get Fred right with God." Was the quote that is they they recognize yeah. the fact that he wasn't big on Jesus as much as the other people not that he was an atheist but just the, simply that he didn't yeah. prioritize that he, he right. was he was uh, he may have been an atheist again he was very he was very private with his views yeah he was very secular yeah and so you know the, with the stories that that we've been talking about there's sort of this undercurrent where people hold atheists to this standard of of uh, you know we've talked before in the show about things like prejudice towards atheists. But, um, you know, and I've done research on that myself, but there's some interesting lines of research coming out lately that show that break that down even further into the actual the, the visceral nature of that of that some people have to, when they even are confronted with with content that's non-religious. Mm-hmm. There's there's an up and coming researcher in the psychology field out of uh, British Columbia called Will Gervais. He's, I don't know if he's related to Ricky Gervais. I'd like <laughs> I to hope, hope so. so. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, he works he works up there, and I've talked about some um, some work before on like a priming of religious concepts. But he has a whole series of studies this year that talk about the prejudice against atheists, specifically with the realm of distrust. Yes. And that uh, yeah. he published an article in one of the big journals in psychology, the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, called Do You Believe in Atheists? Distrust is Central to Anti-Atheist mm-hmm. Prejudice. And this grabbed a lot of headlines in the in the skeptic and atheist community because of one of the experiments within this whole series. He had like half a dozen that showed a, that distrust was central to mm-hmm. anti-atheist mm-hmm. prejudice. But in one, he got at the prejudice indirectly by using a – uh, a method that is called the conjunction fallacy. So a lot of our skeptic readers might be familiar with this because you, uh, the conjunction fallacy is like a bias where people 
um, sometimes violate logic. Uh, the example that's often given in textbooks is when you're told something about a woman uh, who's a bank teller and that she's relatively you know, progressive and they say, what's the likelihood that Linda is a bank teller? And then what's the likelihood that she is a bank teller and a feminist? You know, logically, the second one is by definition smaller group than the first one. It's right. less likely that you would right. be a bank teller and a feminist than just a bank teller. But people get swayed by the information of her sort of progressive views on things, and they say, well, she's more likely to be a feminist bank teller than a bank teller, which, you know. And so he, uh, Gervais used this method of getting at the atheist prejudice with an example that was, you know, what is the likelihood that so-and-so is a blank and an atheist? And he had other categories too, like Muslim, Christian, and um, rapist. Wow. Oh, no. Yeah, and so... I'm, I'm a little afraid to I hear how too. this broke and down. And so this is what grabbed the headlines, is that the, what the, when he looked at people's endorsement of this conjunction fallacy, that the uh, the proportion of people uh, that committed that fallacy, that, that they made the, the logical error, with the, in the direction of the atheist and the rapist were relatively equal uh. as the people, compared to Christians and Muslims. So, you know... Awesome. It, Even Muslim, Muslims beating out the... And this is not in the United States, right? Yeah, so this is actually... And this is the other thing. A lot of his subjects were University of British Columbia. So these wow, are Canadians, Canadians where, uh, like, half the sample was non-religious. Yeah. And so... Um, so and, he, now, did they break it down and even amongst... Uh, Amongst the different groups, yeah. Well, the 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 people who self-identified as atheists, yes, were less likely to associate atheists with with distrust. But the okay. people who That's were good. just like unaffiliated or not particularly religious still endorsed the distrust stereotype, indicating wow. that indicating that it's not just a group defense. If it's if it's a group defense, right. let's say you're agnostic or you just you're nothing in particular, you don't have a dog in the fight, and so you're. Christian, atheist, it, it, you wouldn't be likely to defend or attack either group. Right. But it seemed to be more in line with the interpretation that these things are general social stereotypes. And that even if you're not particularly religious, but yet not an atheist, you just like, yeah, I hear the atheists are not to be trusted. Uh, and so with the, the thing that's sort of striking about his study is that it shows that there is a, you know, a strong undercurrent of that the reaction is actually on a visceral level of like distrustfulness. Wow. Of yeah. atheists. Unbe uh, equivalent to rapist. In that, in that study, yeah. Wow. Unbelievable. So, yeah. So you can understand how gelato guy might go, <laughs> right. I don't want these people in my store. You know, or that the reaction is, momentarily. Yeah, his other studies though actually show that, that in different papers that when you're uh, aware of the prevalence of atheists, a lot of the discrimination goes down. I think mm -hmm. I talked about that at an earlier yeah, 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 absolutely. episode. That that um that a lot of these things to connect with gelato guy might be when you first encounter if you're not familiar with atheists or non-religious and you encounter them and there's some sort of negative stuff that goes down, right. your knee-jerk reaction might be to be. Uh, just like, you know, maybe racial prejudice would have been 40, 50 years ago, that lousy ethnic group. It's now that lousy atheist. And that it can be corrected, though, if you are sort of realized, you know, that, that if it's pointed out to you that that's discrimination. Right. And if you realize that a lot of people out there are not religious, right. uh, that that person, people can self-correct on that. Yeah. And, and you can see some of that at play with, with Gelato Guy in that, first off, he's... He's meeting people all day from from the con, doesn't know that it's an atheist con, 
then has this moment where he hears someone who in a you know very over the top parody sort of way is being offensive to religion and he goes oh my god all of these people here this big group of people is against it's like if your first experience with someone of another race was them punching you in the face or insulting your um your religion so he has this strong reaction and then perhaps cooled off enough to go that that, yeah, that's, that's not what I've been hearing from all the other people right, I've seen right. today. This uh, and that's all you know. Like yeah. I said, that's all racial prejudice and other forms of prejudice work yeah. too. Is that you could say, oh, I have you know black friends or whatever, and but then if you're encountered, let's say, where you get pissed off by a black person or whatever, and then this stuff comes bubbling up out of nowhere yeah. that you didn't know existed, like those lousy black people, and then you realize, you know. Um, that's not representative, that you can be corrected. Your gut reaction can be corrected by what you know to be, you know, true rationally. And this is something that that might want to be taken into consideration if you're someone who you're not sure if you want to maybe, uh, you know, let your family know about your your atheism. I mean, how many people are in that that same position? How many people... If they decided to uh, to come out as an atheist, you know, you know, they are kind of helping. They're the kind they're of putting landscape. themselves at, at some level of risk, right. varying depending on where you are and your, exactly. your circumstances. And of course, we're not, you know, we're not saying, you know, that that that's what necessarily yeah, of course. do. Everyone's going to have their own situation, right? But but, but it does affect popular view. You're of, helping create. I mean, just like National Coming Out Day for homosexuals, it helps um, change people's views of the group when they get to know more of the individuals involved. Yeah. So (laughs) let's uh, wrap up with some polyatheism. This past week, of course, we celebrated Thanksgiving here in the States, and as I may have mentioned earlier, I dislike Thanksgiving because it's based on an imaginary history where brave settlers escaped religious oppression by coming to the New World where they made friends with the natives and all sat down to share a big meal. Of course, what Thanksgiving really represents is the beginning or and probably just the continuation of the destruction of the cultures of the native peoples, as well as a genocide so horrifying that Ray Comfort is making a new video where he uses it to explain the evils of masturbation. I don't think that's true, but it would be great. Oh, oh there we go. <laughs> he's, he's rolling, listener. He's rolling. <laughs> but hey, just so we don't accidentally romanticize the native people on this continent too much... <laughs> Today in polyatheism, we're going to take a look at a native god who liked a good mass killing almost as much as the greedy Europeans who helped extinguish his worshippers in ways that his own priests must have grudgingly admired. I speak hmm. of the Aztec god Utztilapuchtli, a name which means terrifyingly left-handed hummingbird. <laughs> Tremble in fear. <laughs> Are you sure they got that translation right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> like somewhere in the lab, they're like, it says hummingbird. Come on, look at it again. He is a merciless hummingbird. Um, the story <laughs> of Huitzilopochtli begins with his mother, Kotlikyu. Kotlikyu is truly something to behold. She has clawed hands and feet, wears a necklace of human hands and hearts, 
and a skirt made of writhing snakes. Most noticeably, her head is formed by two snakes looking at each other. Aside from being pretty pretty <laughs> horrifying to behold, she also feasted on dead bodies. Despite all that, though, she seems to have done pretty. She seems to have been pretty successful at ensnaring partners because she had 401 children, 400 sons, one daughter. So if the corpse-eating, snake-headed goddess with a chastity belt of poisonous serpents right. can manage to get laid that often, there is no excuse for the rest of you. I'm looking in your direction, Justin. Kotlikyu <laughs> uh, is impregnated wow. once again, but this time by a ball of feathers. Yes, you heard that right. She was impregnated so by a ball work. of feathers. <laughs> if you're feeling a bit put off by that story, you're not alone. Her 401 kids didn't buy it either. They start to think that maybe their mom is, I don't know, having sex or something. <laughs> Imagine. So the Michelle Duggar of the Aztec mythology becomes the target of her own fruit of her womb. They decide they're going to kill their mother. All 401 of them, led by the one daughter, interestingly enough, chases her up the top of a mountain. And just as they're moving in for the kill, Kotlikyu's abdomen erupts and pops out a sun like one of those chest-busting aliens from that movie about the alien. You know, the one where Sigourney Weaver fights the alien? Oh, the one that's called... I can't remember. All right. Anyway, look it up on IMDb. Hotstila Puchli bursts onto the scene fully armored and armed. The only thing that's missing is his skin. Don't worry, it grows in later. Otherwise, he's totally good to go. <laughs> and go he does. His very first act is to chop off his sister's head with his sword and then rip out her heart with a spear made of a flaming serpent before her body even hits the ground. Well, those Aztecs don't play. No, they do not. I find this story very hard to believe. Yeah, well, uh, it's true. It's all true, every <laughs> word of it. He then quickly dispatches most of the 400 brothers, killing many of them and sending the rest of them running. Truly, he is one hummingbird to be reckoned with. He quickly becomes god of the Mexica people, whom we mostly call Aztec, and guided them as they journeyed from what is now the American Southwest to central Mexico. Speaking through a skull the Mexica carried with them, Hutzilopochtli told them where to build the city of Tenochtitlan, which became the capital of the Aztec Empire and is today the site of Mexico, Mexico city. city. Yeah, one of the most densely populated cities in the world. They right? had a rendezvous with Cortez. Yeah. Well, that came later and didn't end well. In Tenochtitlan, the Aztec erected a temple in his honor and christened it with the reported sacrifice of 20,000 people. Though that number may be a bit inflated, clearly human sacrifice was a big part of the worship of Huitzilopochtli. Four priests would hold down a victim while a fifth tore the heart out with an obsidian knife. Yeah. Well, four, on one on each limb, and then they kind of 
um, arch their back so that you could get to the heart under the rib cage instead of going through You're the rib totally cage. You're totally bumming me out. Very man. efficient, really. <laughs> I, um, could, I could just see the prisoner holding tank. Well, they'll probably exchange us for, you know, <laughs> for their prisoners too. Oh, a pyramid. Let's go climb it. <laughs> the head was often severed, sometimes as decorations in the city below, and the body was tossed from the top of the pyramidal temple Down to the, the street below where Hutzilopuchli's mother, Kotliku, could nibble on them. Now, why, you ask, did Hutzilopuchli require so many humans to be sacrificed in his name? Well... The Aztecs believed that every day Hotzilopochtli's battle against his siblings was reenacted in the sky, with the sun, Hotzilopochtli, being born and vanquishing the moon, his sister, and the stars, his brothers. Hotzilopochtli, the god of the sun and war, needed to be appeased so that the world would keep spinning and the sun would rise every day. So, uh, while there was good cause to fear him, he was also a much-loved god and did a lot of good things for them as well. As the god of war, he led them to success in many battles against their neighbors. And Aztec wars were very different than a lot of other wars because the Aztecs fought to capture rather than kill. That way, they had victims to sacrifice to Hotsilopochtli. Makes sense, right? But, of course, the style of warfare is one of the reasons they were ill-prepared for the Spanish conquistadors mm. who fought primarily to kill and cared little for holding on to prisoners to sacrifice later. They were armed to injure and cripple and maim the Spanish came to kill. Hutzilopochtli or to convert. Or to convert. They did a lot of that, too. Hutzilopochtli also helped keep an eye on the god of rain, Tlaloc, whose temple was next door. Uh, you see, Tlaloc required infant sacrifice in order to do his rain mojo, and Hutzilopuchli kept an eye on him to make sure he didn't get too greedy for those delicious, delicious infants. Ray Comfort really missed out on some great material by going the easy route with Nazis <laughs> rather than making a cleaner analogy to Tlaloc. Right. As bloodthirsty as he was, the left-handed hummingbird was a heroic figure for the Aztec and a god much to be admired. So there you have it, Hotzilopochtli, top god of the Aztec, founder of Mexico City, god of war, death, and the sun, and hero to millions, and just one more god worth not believing in. All right, and that will do it for us this week. I encourage you all, once again, to check out freethoughtblogs.com. Freethoughtblogs.com slash reasonable doubts is ours, but there's a ton of other great blogs at Freethoughtblogs. If you have comments, questions, and challenges for us, please send them to doubtcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter at slash doubtcast. Buy some shirts at Zazzle.com slash Doubtcast, and I will get new shirts up very soon. Oh, my God. Luke is wearing his I Think Like Dr. Professor <laughs> shirt. I have to remind myself who I think that like. Is so, <laughs> that's so staggeringly meta. I love it. I love it. As always, um, 
Write us awesome. reviews on iTunes. Share the show with a friend. That is the best thing you can do for us. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back soon with more Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission. 